audience already and I can see a few familiar faces that uh, you have not tuned in to the wrong show. <laughs> this is not fashion on the dance floor. <laughs> Although maybe we could do that. Um, right. We've got a few people here. So this is great. Let's just explain what this craziness is all about. Paul got a suggestion from a friend that him and I would make a good double act. Paul, explain. Yeah, um, Money Penny turned up on kind of one of the late night property, um, whatever we want to call them, clubhouses. And I hear some people call them shows. I always think that's a bit pretentious, but Money Penny turned up on one of the late night property clubhouses. And me and her were having a little bit of banter, as we do, because we've met each other on clubhouses before. And um, a guy called Sunil, who runs one of the morning clubhouses, said, used to sound like really entertaining together. I, I wasn't sure if that was an insult or a compliment. I'm still working on that. Um, I thought I was informative and I thought I was educational, but it actually turns out I'm just side entertainment. Anyway, he said we would sound a bit entertaining together and why didn't we try a clubhouse show? And I thought, yeah, let's do that. Because some of the um, some of the, what shall we call them? Um, the property related rooms on Clubhouse can be a tad grown up and a tad serious. Um, and I was getting a little bit bored of that because um, I like a bit of banter and I was I was struggling for the banter. And one thing I can guarantee every time I hear Money Penny is a little bit of banter. So that was that was the premise behind it. We, we hope in here as well, there might be some kind of um, informative information. There might even be on a good night some education. But generally speaking, I think it will be two people with opposing views on just about everything, um, chatting to each other and um, and calling each other mad, but in the politest possible way. I know. And rare it is for a Scotsman to be polite, she says, having a father who is a Scotsman. <laughs> So, um, yeah, we'll just do a little intro so Paul can tell him, uh, tell you a bit about himself and myself, too, because I know we'll have some new people here. While we're doing it, though, while you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs and thinking, my God, what have I let myself in for? Go and ping some people in. Share the room for us. Tell them that they are about to witness orally through the ears, <laughs> the most astonishingly playful property and mortgage show. And I have got some real breaking property and mortgage news. If you know me in the other rooms that I do, which are current events, geopolitics, medical, scientific, uh, cars, Formula One, those are all the types of shows that I do. I used to be a BBC journalist for my sins and therefore I like to get news and I like to break and share news. So we'll be having some of that. We'll be educating you whether you're a property investor, whether you are somebody looking at mortgages, lending, equity release, or legislation, dare I say the horrible L word, what's the government up to at a macro level, what is happening economically in terms of interest rates, base rates, mortgage rates, and yes, dare I say it, a change of political climate. So my background, for those that don't know, um, 30 odd years in very um, complicated financial services, originally in investment banking and economics, um, then a good 15 years in the insurance sector, mainly B2B as a financial uh, consultant, 
Um, I am qualified in FPC, CMAP, um, lots of other trading qualifications. Yes, for my sins, I used to do a bit of financial trading years ago. Um, but I'm going to be focusing more on mortgages, which is the role that I've had um, most recently in the past few years, alongside a consultancy role that I do in helping people build businesses. Um, so that could be you if you're a landlord, if you're a smaller private landlord, or if you're thinking of getting into property, you've got to run it as a business. And so those are the sort of things we can look at too. Um, I am currently not working simply because of ill health, um, but that doesn't mean that I can't talk the talk and sort of walk the walk. Um, you're in good hands because alongside me is somebody who is very expert in the field of property, and that is Paul. So uh, I was thinking of a new title for the um, for the show. What about Beauty and the Beast? How about that? Um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes, I am a bit of a beast. You're right. <laughs> I was thinking you might provide the beauty, I'd provide the beast. Um, so obviously Money Penny is both it supplies the um, the intelligence and the good look. So I'm just here as a kind of side act. It's a bit like Abbott and Costello, but um, or Markham and Wise. And and I'm I, I think I'm the straight man. I think that's the theory uh, behind it all. So Paul Merrick, um, my uh, my bio. I'm tempted to say tall, dark, handsome, witty, talented. <laughs> tall, dark, handsome, witty, charming and intelligent. Did you notice how the words got stuck in my throat halfway through? That's interesting, isn't it? Um, but actually, um, it's none of the above. What I actually am is a veteran, as uh, as Money Penny calls it, in property. 30 years almost as a property developer and landlord um, with both commercial and residential property, as well as being a consultant for some major PLCs and um, local regeneration agencies, currently selling up our property portfolio and moving to being an angel investor and venture capitalist for my sins. So that's my proper bio, um, and I'll hand it back to Money Penny. So, um, I'm sure you do all the thinking in this role. So have you thought about what we're going to share with them tonight and what order we might do it in? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Paul. So I thought we'd just start with a bit of the news. I'm just going to give you two or three quick news bulletins from the world of mortgage and property. This is focused <clears throat> predominantly on the United Kingdom. But as I've regularly been in shows both on property and, and other sort of current events, finance topics with the United States citizens, um, there are some similarities and there are some clear dissimilarities where I've been looking at the potential for investment across different currencies or where somebody currently resident in the United States wants to take advantage of something like the almost parity on the euros, that's where the dollar is equivalent to one euro almost, could the person in the United States use that to their advantage by investing in property in the European market? That's a question. I'll leave that there and come back to it. Um, but first of all, I would like to invite anybody that is joining the um, audience to join us on the stage. If you're somebody who has a particular question, um, if you're a beginner, if you're thinking of buying, if you're thinking of selling, if you don't know what the current mortgage market is, should you hold, should you go for a fixed rate, should you be looking at getting rid of your second home or your buy-to-let, or is now a good time to get into buy-to-let? I'm going to go through the 
latest figures, inflation and how they will impact on your choice. And then I'm going to turn to three top subjects of the day. The top subject of the day is rental reform. This is an article at the top of the page you might want to take a look at. This is changes being made to the rental sector, um, some of them now and some of them further up. We're talking about things like EPC. This is getting the energy rating of a property up to the correct level to allow it to be used as a second property. Do you bother investing what could be up to £30,000 to do it? or not. So rental reform number one. Number two on our picture is affordability changes in the mortgage market. We are making some big changes in the UK as to lending, who we lend to, how we lend to them and the criteria that we now look at. So we've got that as a big one, affordability. And then the last one, I want to focus on property investment per se and look at what is happening in the market. And I'm asking Paul to run this one in terms of what opportunities are opening up in a high inflation, higher rate climate. Paul, does that sound okay to you? That sounds good. It sounds like we're going to have a fully packed show. Um, any idea how long, long it runs? Uh, are we thinking about yes, an hour? Yes, I was thinking I think that was that that tech get show, get so see how it goes. Um, I'd yeah. also like, um, Paul, if you could just monitor the back channel questions while I'm speaking and vice versa. And if there's anybody that would love to come up and help us, Ahmed, <laughs> uh, just to be able to moderate a bit and look after back channel messages, that would be fabulous. Not putting any pressure on anybody, but the hands are open. So um, we're not scary. Do come up. <laughs> right. We're going to start with a bit of news. Um, I want to start first with this rental reform. Paul, could you click on the article at the top and just read for me the first couple of paragraphs to tell us what's changing in the rental reform market? I'd probably prefer if you did that, Money Penny, and um, you're you're much more proficient than me. But just while you're doing that, I uh, I want to point out that um, a lot of the rental reforms that have been suggested um, across the rest of the UK we have had in Scotland for many, many years now. So since 2017, we had a, a rental reform bill which entirely changed the way that um, rental property help happens in Scotland. In 2017, we changed from the um, SATs um, to the private rental um, treaty or private rental agreement, which has got already a lot of the um, the basis. In fact, I, I would argue that one was based on the other. I feel like Scotland was kind of used as a test ground to see how it worked here before we actually kind of take it across the rest of the UK. Um, it's it's had an interesting effect in Scotland. It certainly made lots of landlords think again, me being one of them. And we chose within our business um, not to give anybody one of the new um, rental leases um, and only stick with the tenants that are on the old SATs. And when those SATs come to an end, we have decided um, that we are selling all of our um, buy-to-let stroke, uh, stroke residential rental properties. So a lot of the rental reform that we are looking at coming in across the United Kingdom is already here in Scotland. 
That's fascinating, actually. It does, to many um, people probably listening, make it absolutely clear how different England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland should be treated. Um, it's one thing when you're thinking about energy bills as well. Um, we declare, or the, you know, the UK government declares it's going to help people out by giving them rebates on energy bills. And it's not exactly clear who gets those, um, not just in terms of the landlord or the tenant, but also in which parts of the country benefit from certain rules and which don't. So a very good point. Hmm. Okay, we'll come back to think on that one. Right, we're going to go into some news. My only concern here, Paul, is when I switch to my news, it might stop my microphone working. So I'm going to trial this because I'm doing it on the same device um, and just see how this works. So the first bit of news that I want to talk about is um, this is coming from the Mortgage Introducer publication, and it is about the rate of house price growth being surprising. This is something that has come from just the last couple of weeks. Um, it's dated the 3rd of August, and this is a report saying that the annual house prices in the UK have increased by 11% in July compared to 107 in the previous month. That was Nationwide's um, statement. This was the 12th consecutive monthly increase, and this shows that prices also rose by 0.1% month on month with the average house price now reaching £271,000. A lot of economists and a lot of housing experts have said that they are surprised by this and that the market experts who pointed out demand for homes was going to slow as rates went up are asking how far this is going to continue because they've got the cost of living crisis. We've got spiralling inflation up to 9.4%. That's a 40-year high. And yet we are still seeing, particularly in the more rural areas, quite a healthy increase in prices. <clears throat> now, just as a, an aside here, you've no doubt watched some of these property programs where you get an old property or the worst property in the street, you renovate it and you do your utmost to keep the costs down. Well, I've just watched one in the last couple of hours. And I tell you, there's this couple, they bought um, in a terrace, a fairly sort of average 300, 350,000 pounds sort of semi-detached place at about 415,000 pounds. They spent two months and about 28,000 pounds doing it up. And they then got a valuation back of about 480. So net, you know, they were looking at sort of 55 maybe on paper as a growth. But when the expert of the program came along, their total overall investment, all their hard work, everything they bought, all those months they spent working on it, 7% increase. Now, there's one thing saying you've made a 7% increase, but when inflation is 9.4, you've actually lost money. <laughs> it's crazy to think about it that way, but this is the way that the mentality of the property investor needs to be. If you are earning less than 9% on your money, you are probably just keeping pace or effectively losing money with that inflation rate. What do you reckon to that, Paul? I, I love these grand statistics that come out, um, you know, from people like the Nationwide. And they kind of forget that there is no UK property market. There is UK property markets, and there's several different UK property markets. 
you know, there's the Scottish market, there's the North of England market, there's the Welsh market, there's the Ireland market, there's the South of England market, and there's the London market. And all of those are very, very different markets in terms of the way they perform, in terms of the way that people buy, and in terms of the trends that are happening at any given time. And that, even that, is talking about macro markets. So you, when you're talking about the whole of Scotland or the whole of the North of England, that's a macro market. Inside of that macro market, there are lots of micro markets, towns, villages, um, cities that kind of that buck every trend that is ever mentioned on any of these, um, you know, vast take it all into consideration um, surveys that are done. Basically, what I'm saying in the politest possible way is they're not worth the paper they're written on. You know, if you're looking at property, you should look at the property that you're looking to um, buy. And I'm not going to use the word invest. I object to it by nature. But the pro the area that you're going to buy in and you should say, OK, what's actually happening in, in this area? And that can be the, the macro area if you're, if you're buying across, you know, the whole of the north of England or the whole of Scotland, or it can be a micro area if you're looking at particular cities, towns or villages. And that's what you should focus on. And this information that comes out that gives you, you know, average numbers across the whole of the UK literally isn't worth the paper that it's written on or the screen that you're looking at it on. It's a waste of everybody's time, but it makes good news items. Oh, controversial as ever, Mr. Merrick. <laughs> he started off the programme by saying, this uh, Money Penny and I don't agree on anything. We're going to have a bust up. Well, he's right. He could bring it on because I disagree with some things that he said. The thing is, you can be a very micro investor. You can hide in your little hole or your cave in Scotland and say, I'm not coming out. I know what's going on in the big wide world. And you can meet somebody like Moneypenny, who's Miss Macroeconomist, who says, but Paul, take that hat off your head, those dark glasses off and come out the cave. Because when you've got 9.4% inflation, that means everything is costing more. That means when you go to refurbish the property that you just bought and you want to get a plumber in or you want to get more electrics in or you want to go down to Ikea and get a couple of beds, they're all going to cost more about 9.4% more. And has wage inflation kept pace? Has it? Hell, no, we're all out on strike. We don't believe our money is in our pockets in the right amount that is anywhere near 9.4%. So you're not going to get any tenants willing to come in and pay that amount of money, are you? Now I'm being controversial. That's uh, no, not controversial. <laughs> uh, you clearly haven't listened to me enough on, on Clubhouse. Um, I am going to kind of take your uh, macro view, right, as you read your headlines from your um, tower in the south, right, and I'm going to bring you back down to reality with a bang. Do you know, this job has always been, property has always been about your ability to buy right, whether it's buying a property right, whether it's buying services right, whether it's buying and materials right so to give you a real example ground roots example of that money penny um the average price that people will say that you should be building at, at the moment for a new build property is round about two thousand to two thousand pounds per square meter we are currently building nine houses in scotland 
at a thousand pounds per square meter, even with your nine percent inflation, madam. So this job isn't about that macro view and listening to the news. This job is about the micro view of actually doing your job and seeking out things at the right price. God, we love him. Ugh, he may be a bit stingy being a Scotsman, but God, we love him. Uh, I'm just quickly going to pick up a, a very good uh, question in the, the back channel, which is how many of these properties actually complete? Because it's okay saying they're selling. It's okay saying the market is buoyant. It's okay saying, oh, in the Cotswolds, we've had 15% uh, increase. But I personally am currently trying to sell a property in the Cotswolds, and the average time for completion is about four to five months at the moment. Now, how many people are going to hang on four to five months, particularly if they're a cash buyer or they're a first time buyer. They don't want to be in the nasty chain. They don't want to wait for everybody else's property purchase to collapse. Well, look, I've just found this, which is interesting enough. Property sales failing through pre-completion admits cost of living concerns. Now, this is a headline from an award-winning property magazine called Property Eye. A new report published today shows that home moves in England and Wales, and it doesn't mention Scotland, are struggling to complete amidst failing consumer confidence. The cross-market Q2 report represents a comprehensive analysis of the property sector in the UK, does it? And reveals most of the transaction process is stabilising. Transactions are elongating for the sold subject to contract. But the number of transactions that actually progress to completion is down 11%. So we've got a really wobbly market. And I know it's because in Scotland, there is a different way of purchasing, completing, guaranteeing and putting your life on the line in Scotland. But in England and Wales, there is a real roadblock when it comes to conveyancing. There is a real roadblock with councils doing the basic searches. This is where you rely on your council to do a basic land registry search, a basic uh, geographical search to look at problems with flooding, all those sorts of things, which you would think you could just go online and download. No, in fact, Tewkesbury Council in England, Tewkesbury Council is now famous for taking up to 18 weeks to do one search. Now, that means if you are trying to purchase a property or indeed sell a property to someone, you are beholden to councils, even if you have the greatest solicitor conveyancer on the planet. It's no wonder people are pulling out with frustration. And also because by the time you've agreed a price, three or four months later, that price may not quite be relevant to what it is you've already agreed on. Paul, tell us what's happening in Scotland, because you've got, in my impression, a much more sensible system. I always call it civilised. We've got a very civilised system when you buy a property in Scotland. Um, we don't have gazumping. It doesn't exist in Scotland. In Scotland, the simple the system is very simple. You know, like us Scottish people need to be money penny. You know how it is. They can't have a complicated system for simple people like us. So that we so we do it much more sensibly. If you make an offer to buy my property and you make that offer through a solicitor and I accept that offer, that deal is then done. Now, um, what happens from there is you sign what's called a missive, which is a contract, and you're tied into that contract. But 
you know, the mere nature of your solicitor making an offer to our solicitor is classed as part of that missive contract and the sale is, is then done. And then it takes a few weeks for lawyers to do whatever they do. You know, that magic art that seems when you actually look at it to be very simple and if we were legally allowed to do so, we could finish that probably in a day. Well, that then takes them in Scotland about six weeks on average because solicitors are so intelligent. And then you sign a disposition and that's the day that the property actually changes hands. But you've made a legal commitment the moment you make an offer in Scotland and that offer's accepted. Very civilised system. Um, just to give you one of your statistics, because I know you like statistics. Um, you know what they say about statistics, don't you? You know, there's lies, there's damned lies, and then there's statistics. But I will give you one of your statistics because I know you like them so much. Here's a statistic. 35% of all property transactions are falling out of bed at the moment. So that's, you know, that's more than a third of all property transactions that you see the little sold sign going up and you think you've sold your house and actually you haven't. That's that has a 35% chance of falling through. Yeah, that's shocking. Um, and presumably, we're not just looking at first-time buyers, but also property investors looking at buying a uh, property for their portfolio as a buy-to-let. Would that be right, Paul? Just generally speaking, it's across the board. It's all types of properties. There's just about 35% of properties falling out. The average across the UK used to be 25%. So it's always been a high rate. And that is, to be frank, mainly to do with the English legal system and not so much to do with the Scottish legal system. But we do get properties fall out of bed here as well, just it's much rarer in Scotland. But um, the English system kind of almost doesn't just allow it, but encourages it. And that's an interesting thing that I've never quite understood, although I've bought several properties in, in England. Because they do allow us across the border sometimes, you know, but, but not for long stays, just for visits and, and an occasional purchase. I don't think I'm allowed to hold on to any of the properties. That's why I've just sold them back to English people and made money. <laughs> Should we punch him? Should we punch him? Yes, probably. Right. Let's move on to something a little bit more less interesting, which is the horrible topic of regulation changes. Now, I'm going to be Miss Mortgage person at the moment, and I'm going to speak as a mortgage consultant um, from a sort of macro level. Obviously, I'm not giving any advice. Um, I want to look at how we decide whether or not to give mortgages. Now, this is not just a mortgage in a residential capacity. We obviously get property investors wanting to finance investment. Now, they may go through a traditional mortgage route. They may go through a joint venture. They may go through something like a crowd property lending or some sort of external angel investor. Lots of different routes for the average property investor, depending on size, scale and the amount of capital they've got behind them, how long they've been in the business, how experienced they are. But let's just start with the average person on the street at the moment who's looking to finance maybe a first property or maybe a remortgage, either to downscale or to upscale. Now, ordinarily, for the last few years, the mortgage consultant starts off, obviously, with the basic fact find, taking the information, and then they look at two things, affordability and suitability. And these are based on looking at the outgoings that the household has, the incoming, that is the normal income, 
perhaps with a self-employed person, it's a little bit more complicated. We can go into that. But generally, we look at money going out, money coming in, and then we look at affordability. But over the last few years, let's say the interest rate that the people have applied for is a 2% fix for two years. Now, we look at the money going out, money coming in and say at 2%, this couple would be able to afford it easily. But we then had to add a further margin, 3%, 4%, 5%. The affordability rules forced us as mortgage consultants to add a premium rate. So instead of looking at can they afford it at 2%, we'd say can they afford it at 5% and then rerun the same numbers. And if we then got into a borderline situation, then things became much more difficult. And by the time the IFA or the independent mortgage consultant has sent that into one of the lenders that we believe will be flexible enough to take that deal, things can change a lot. The other thing to take into account is at the moment, valuations on properties have changed quite a lot. Over the pandemic, a lot of valuations were being done as online, virtual valuations. This could be so much as a drive-by or simply going online, looking at Google Maps, looking at comparative properties in the area and giving a valuation. But now we are back normally to physical valuations and the valuation market has really started to upset the purchasing process because inevitably valuations have started coming in quite a lot lower than one would expect. And this is another destabilizing influence. So when a mortgage consultant is offering the mortgage to somebody, the affordability and suitability, obviously being based on, is this property over a cafe that is potentially going to go on fire? Is the insurance gonna be difficult to achieve the building's insurance on this property? Is this property suitable because these people are already five years away from retirement and will only be able to have a short-term mortgage? All those parameters that we would take into account are changing. Now the government decided they wanted to encourage more first-time buyers. Ironically, because we know there's a shortage of properties, a massive shortage of property. But nevertheless, we're encouraging first time buyers to get on the property ladder. And the biggest, biggest thing by far is putting a deposit down, is putting down your probably 5%. In some cases, we have now got shared ownership or support from government in certain areas and certain types of housing. But basically, we're looking at a 5% lump sum down. And that buyer, has to prove where that money has come from. So if you are a UK resident, but perhaps you're on a visa, you've come from Eastern Europe, you've come from another part of the world, it can become much more complicated. But the change in the rules that has really affected whether or not a mortgage person can grant a mortgage at the moment is affordability. And that has changed. Paul, just over to you. How much do you think this is changing your market from a property investor perspective? Well, I'm moving out of the market, so it's not changing my money market at all, Money Penny. Um, as I said in my introduction, I am moving away from property. Property served me very well for almost three decades, but I don't think it's the most intelligent place to put my money, my time, or my effort into anymore. Um, so it doesn't. It's not relevant to me, but it's going to be relevant to a lot of people. Um, my biggest fear is these changes aren't changes for the better, but they're changes for the worse. Um, I fear that the government are 
looking at changing this in terms of making it easy to get a mortgage, easier to get a mortgage, not more difficult to get a mortgage, and making the um, terms and conditions easier so that there will be no um, real restrictions in place. And that's going back to the days of 2006, 2007, when you know we got ourselves into a mess in the first place. And I, I just, I, I can almost smell the 2006, 2007 crisis happening all over again. Not a complete and total repeat of the same crisis, but the results being very, very similar. So we have affordability. There's an article at the top of the page from The Guardian. I don't think, as a macro-level economist, that this is particularly a good idea. But obviously, there's a political side to it, as well as an economical side to it. The article, Bank of England Scraps Mortgage Affordability Test. Now, inevitably, by not asking whether my client can afford their mortgage if rates were to rise by 3% above what they are taking their mortgage at, inevitably, there is going to be a much wider gap for people to get into difficulty. Now, why bring in this huge, great big flexibility to allow people to buy mortgages at a time when we have got the crushing levels of energy price inflation? We've got gas and electricity bills up four, 500% in some areas. We've got the increased cost of even furnishing a property. We've got the increased cost of actually paying council taxes and other things that you can't get away from. And we are telling people to borrow more money more easily. To me, this strikes as potentially a little bit of an issue. The biggest issue for me, though, quite frankly, is what's happening in the United States, where they seem to be giving money away, where the banks have little or no reserve asset ratio and are stretching themselves beyond the limits, even of the what I saw in the financial crisis. That's my particular thing. I'm not going to get doom and gloom on that. But inevitably, the Bank of England change from the 1st of August dictates that you are now allowed to apply for a mortgage and not have your income assessed in the same way to affordability at the rate that you're taking it out. So 3% on a five-year mortgage, you are looked at for affordability. You no longer have to be challenged on a 6%. Paul, is this good or bad? I think it's all bad. Um, I, I found a, an interesting comment from Emmy in, in the comment section. He said, the best position to be in at the moment in property is a trainer. And I'm sure he's saying that with a degree of kind of um, tongue in his cheek. But I certainly agree with him. Um, I think the days of being a property co-investor or a property business person are getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And I think actually the providers, the service providers to the industry now are actually likely to be more successful than the people actually in the industry. So whilst he's saying that in a tongue-in-cheek fashion, I would guess, I think he's actually touching on a point that's right. I, uh, I would much rather be in your position as a mortgage um, broker than be that in a in a position where I was owning lots and lots of properties, which are not turning into the assets that the ones were, but are turning into heavy liabilities in this day and age. Yeah, 
Now, I'd love to hear comments from the audience. I'd love people to come up. Um, there is a very um, intellectual bunch of people in this back channel with some good questions. And I particularly like what uh, Amber Morton is saying. Um, she's got some wise, wise words to, to share. Products are expiring due to lengthy completion. Absolutely. Now, when you apply for a mortgage, you get a, a decision in principle. It's called a dip. Um, but there are absolutely um, criteria which mean that if you do not take up that mortgage because you don't complete, because you're stuck in a housing chain, you may have that product be withdrawn from you. It's a very good point and it is a very serious thing that inevitably is going to be happening more. Because whilst we have been in the luxury for the last 10 years or so of these super low rates where you can stretch out 1.5, 1.7% over five or 10 years and sit back in heaven knowing there's not much volatility, we have now got volatility in spades. We have got a market that has gone through a pandemic. We have now got product shortages, labor shortages. Everything is going up when it comes to inflation. We can't find people to do jobs. We've got we've got things like ports shut where products, raw materials are not coming in because they're stuck on cargo ships. We've got products not leaving the country. We can't go on holiday. The airports haven't got enough resource to be able to put us in an airplane. We've got food shelves that are empty because Fruit and vegetables are rotting in fields because nobody is around to pick them. We've got this devastating, bonkers world of volatility going on. And God forbid, if there's one thing I would do, and I can't even give advice, but if it was me, I would fix my mortgage rates quickly and I would fix them long and I would make sure I had some solidity and I would get away from volatility. But we can't all do that because in property investment, volatility can be good. <laughs> yes, it can work the other way, Paul. I just want to pick you up on something you said there, and and I'm surprised of all the people for you to say it, Money Penny. You used the expression "we have came through a pandemic." Um, I think what we came through was a lockdown. I think we're still very much in the heart of a pandemic. Um, you know, look at the numbers of people, the rising numbers of people being hospitalised. Look at the rising number of cases. We've got more yes, cases folks. now than we've had at any other point in time. So we're still very much in a pandemic. And look at the effect that that pandemic is having on the country. On average, on a given day, at the moment, we have got 25 to 30 percent of our population who are off sick. And that is one of the reasons that we have all of the problems that you've mentioned. I, I was reading an article just yesterday that said the NHS on every given day are about 30 percent down because of um, because of the pandemic, because of uh, the coronavirus, because people are still being infected and people are still being unwell. and. You know, the pandemic may not have killed as many people as some um, said at the beginning, although I'm sure it's not done yet. Um, but I'll tell you what it is doing. It's killing our economy and it's killing economies around the world because you cannot take 25 to 30 percent of the working population out of work every day and expect that not to have an effect on an economy of whichever country it's happening in. Wow. Well, for those of you that know me well, you'll know how hard I was biting my tongue as Paul came out with fantasy land, I'll call it. Fantasy land. Yes, you come to the Money Penny Merrick show where we disagree on everything or some things. But um, right, I'm going to be gentle. 
there are no huge hospitalizations. Coronavirus at the moment is something called Omicron, which is genetically more similar to a common cold. Nobody has died from Omicron. People have died with it when they go into hospital because they've broken their legs or fallen off a bus. Monkeypox is confined 99% to men in a certain niche area, 75% of which live in London, none of which, of course, increased hospitalizations. Unless you are referring to some evil bug that nobody else knows about, the ONS figures actually show that there were 227 people across the whole of the United Kingdom that went into hospital as a result of an evil bug. Most people just go in because they're ill. The problem is we've got no doctors and no nurses, and not because they're wiped out with that horrible coronavirus, but because they've probably decided that it's a lot nicer to stay at home and have a better quality of life with the lovely people that they worship in their lovely house that they never saw over the most traumatic, horrible time when they work their butts off and the government isn't going to pay them 9.4% to equal inflation to get back off their butts and go into hospital. <gasps> Let's not go into that. I'm getting sidetracked. This is not something we want to do. I'm slapping my own wrist. Let's go back into property. Paul? I just don't know where you get your statistics from, but um, I, I, I'd love to see your statistics compared to my statistics. One day you can show me yours and I will show you mine, as they say. Right. Um, in, in the meantime, um, thank you for living in cloud cuckoo land. Um, anyway. Come on, boys, moving, girls, let's get back moving to property. Forward. Right. Moving forward. Moving forward, let's get back into EPC land. Right, Paul, can you just roughly summarise what is coming in as a new regulation for energy performance certificates and how this is going to impact particularly the property investor? No, I want to talk about how mad it is, how mad all of this is, how it's you know, it is absolute and complete madness that you pay somebody 65 to 70 pounds to wander around your house to decide how warm it is, right? And, you know, most of the people who do this job are in and out in a matter of minutes, um, take some random figures and put them together and say, you need X or you need Y. It is complete and total madness. And it is a yet another one of the many, many reasons why I am getting out of this business, because we are being wrapped up in red tape, wrapped up in red tape. We're being mummified in red tape in this industry. And that's just another bit of red tape that we have been mummified in. It is absolute nonsense. There is no sense to it. And a, a huge percentage of the houses in this country will never get an appropriate certificate to say they are efficient energy efficient places to live it's just mad it's just something else to throw at the property industry because we haven't had enough thrown at us for the last few years and i'm sorry that's how i'm going to be on a lot of these things money penny i'm not going to talk about the detail of something that's nonsense nonsensical i totally agree on this one totally i'm with you on that one it's impossible to achieve for the vast majority of homes in the UK what what they are looking to achieve. And all they're doing is penalising people 
to achieve what? And and interestingly enough, let's take the flip side of that. When we had the heat wave recently, we found that some of the newly built buildings were overheating and they couldn't cool them down. And the old fashioned buildings that used to be built in a way that let air travel through them, they had that natural air conditioning. So we're building places for people to melt now. It's just nonsense. Yes, I am totally with you on that. As and I've been a landlord, I've had um, 22 years where I've had second or third properties. I think at the peak I had four properties, all with big mortgages, but all of which I got good rental income um, and all of which effectively I was able to come out on top. But in a Regency property, a property that is maybe built in the late 1800s, let's say, where you've got big sash windows, for example, big sash windows that are beautiful with the type of glass in the windows that is still back to 1860 that wouldn't meet any safety criteria at the moment and is rubbish when it comes to having any insulating properties whatsoever. And yet, if you want to take that building and make it into an HMO to put four or five professional tenants in it, you have absolutely no way of keeping that place warm and insulated. And you're not allowed to replace the windows in old properties, in areas of conservation, in all these things. And yet you have to take off Regency doors and put in fire doors and you have to put in lots of smoke alarms and alarms all over a ceiling that is highly decorative and goes back to the you know 1900s. Um, I personally find it abhorrent what some of the regulations are when they're taken out of the people's books that decide the regulations sitting in London where you know you are putting nine or ten people in something the size of one bedroom yes fine i can understand there might be a reason for it but when you come out of london and come to the cotswolds or go to scotland or go to the middle of wales those rules just they're just nonsensical they are absolutely nonsensical so this ridiculous idea and you can see the article at the top for those of you who think what on earth are we talking about in the telegraph Buyers are now demanding discounts for poorly insulated homes. The regulations are coming in. I think it's 2025. They're forecast to come in where we have an energy performance certificate and every property is assessed based on things like have you got insulated windows? Have you got 22 layers of foam in your um, ceiling? Have you pumped lots of unnecessary concrete into your walls? Um, obviously, I'm being dry and sarcastic because that's what British people tend to do. But in all honesty, I wholly agree with Paul and most of the property investors who have made nice, happy, warm, safe homes for their tenants for years and years but who have one person that comes in, looks around with the clipboard and gives you a D. D for do not pass go. You are not going to be allowed to rent this one out until you make it a C. Now, as an example, I had a basement in a Regency property, um, a flat on its own, and the guy with the clipboard was ready to put that big D in. And I said to him, well, hang on, have you had a look at the boiler that is newly replaced? And on the fact that I could produce a 
external um what's it called uh temperature changer lost my words um wireless uh temperature thermometer help me out paul you know what i mean something that control the temperature of the boiler externally i went from a d to a c because i'd put a boiler in and the tenants were able to have um economic use of a boiler that was able to be thermostat that's it to be able to have an active wireless thermostat and because i'd put in this new boiler with a new thermostat i went from d to c on one person's opinion. Other people, completely different opinions as to what grading my property would have. But for most property investors, they are looking at having to upgrade their properties. And this is quoted from an article in The Telegraph, spending between 8,000 minimum and 30,000 pound average to move a property into the C performance category in order to be able to continue to rent it to long-term tenants that have perhaps been their years quite happy with the performance of their energy. It just makes no sense. That was the point I was just going to make money, Penny. You know, as a landlord who had over 100 tenants at one point in time, I, I never had anybody ask me about an EPC. Um, you know, my tenants were concerned, my customers, as I like to call them, were concerned about many things. That was never one of them. We always provided homes that could be heated and heated, you know, economically well. But this is just a nonsense. And it, and it's, again, where one bit of legislation is going to overlap another bit of legislation that makes it completely impossible. So across the United Kingdom, I was in York yesterday, a beautiful city, York, and a heck of a lot of listed buildings. In fact, a huge percentage of York um, is listed. How do you stay within the listing criteria of a listed building and then insulate it appropriately. An impossible task, absolutely impossible task. So what happens to those properties? Well, they get an exemption. So how comes it's okay? Because they're exempt. So this bit of paper says we can't have that bit of paper, so we don't need any bit of paper. Great, great idea, fantastic idea. Um, it's it's you know it's one of those rules except for the exceptions and what's the point of a rule if there's so many exceptions to it and if you take how many listed buildings there are across the united kingdom which incidentally grows doesn't get less every year but grows every year then we're going to have more and more exceptions to a rule that's completely unnecessary in the first place i mean it's my my pet hate that i keep going at is how much the past two and a half years, we'll call it the pandemic years, destroyed landlords. It was all about the tenant. And just recently, I've seen so many reports of smaller private landlords, you know, between two and five properties, even somebody that just had a second property are selling. They are sale, sale, sale. And you know why? Because they couldn't evict a tenant, even a tenant, that was pretty much sitting there ravaging their property, not obeying the rules, not doing the gardening, not throwing the rubbish out, degrading every aspect of that property. They could not get rid of them during the pandemic. And of course, like everything else that became a longer and longer queue until after the pandemic rules stopped, there are now years, years and years of lists of people waiting to get into court to get tenant problems to a resolution. There are landlords that are thousands of pounds out of pocket because they had to protect the tenant. 
Who protected the landlords? I mean, personally, I lost, well, I'll say, over £20,000 from having to maintain two empty flats where the tenants were legally allowed to stay without paying anything. They were either embargoed or they were um, embargoed. They were either um, put on uh, money from the government for COVID, but they all went back to live with their parents. They wanted to be safe and I don't blame them, but I still had to pay gas, electricity, mortgage, council tax, everything else on properties for two years that stood empty with no income coming in. Nobody protected the little landlady like myself. And unfortunately, that's why I'm selling. Um, well, I've sold, I've, I've gone, and I don't want Paul and I to sit here and tell everybody you've got to sell, but, you know, it's a, it's a bit difficult to sustain when you've got a rental income coming in of 7 or 8%, perhaps, and then you've got energy costs up 60, 100, 200%, um, council tax up, and you've got tenants that are nice, long-term, good tenants, perhaps, who've looked after and loved the property, but you're now physically making a loss. You're not even making a margin on the property. Um, so there are a lot of smaller landlords that are leaving, leaving the property business altogether. And who blames them? But Paul, when is it going to end? Is it going to get better? Well, it's interesting. I was listening to you there, Money Penny, and I was thinking, hmm. It's all went from the um, small landlord in favour of the tenant. Uh, yes, there's an element of truth in that, but let me tell you the real truth. The real truth is about big money coming into our industry. That's what it's about. I remember writing an article for the YPN magazine in 2014 about the build to rent sector and about the not millions of pounds, but billions of pounds that's going into the build to rent sector and how that planning consent has been made much simpler for the build to rent sector as well. That was the whole point of extending the permitted development was to let the build to rent sector grow. And in my humble opinion, and you know all my opinions are humble, money penny. In my humble opinion, right, this has got very little to do with the benefit of the tenants. This is to do with the benefit of big business. This is to do with the benefit of corporates, really large corporates, the same people who you know who help fund our political parties are now moving into the private rental sector in a big style with the buy build to rent um, phenomenon that's taking off no end and they're taking it right across the board originally build to rent was only large um large uh, kind of ugly blocks of flats it's now moving into low density as well as high density and well, as well as mid density and we're seeing it happening more and more every day and i don't think the majority of these rules and regulations are to help the tax man. I don't think they're to help the tenant. I think they're to help the large corporate business take over a sector that has been making, frankly, too much money for little people for too long. Do you know, I totally agree. I've just been looking at some of the comments in the back channel. Um, Imi, who um, put in the back channel, 55% of his portfolio are not going to meet the EPC regulations. And I'm assuming, you know, he has a healthy portfolio and is doing this professionally. I'd love him to come up and talk. I've invited him up. But I mean, where does that leave the property investment market? 
if the regulations, in addition to, I mean, let's discount all this hyperinflation and potential recession and whatever, which in my opinion is going to be over within a year. That's my positive look on it at the moment. I think, you know, this whole crushing the, you know, economy is going to crash. I think that's totally over the top. I don't think we should be panicking like that. But, you know, a year on, two years on from now, 2025, if over 50% of good, proper, professional, long-term property investors are looking at half of their portfolio, needing investments of maybe 20, 30,000 pounds per property to meet a regulation, where's the, where's the sector going to go? And I mean, surely it's just going to be taken over, not big money, by foreign investors with lots of extra money who just need seven or eight percent on their, you know, their investment and a bit of capital gains at the the end of their tenancy time. The, the, the small British landlord is not going to stand a chance. I'll, I'll uh, counter that by saying that I don't think the international investor is actually looking to make any money. I've said this in some rooms before. Many of these international investors... Imi, could you possibly put your volume up a little bit? Is this any better? Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Okay. So like I was saying, the international investor is simply looking for a safe house for their money. So they're not interested in numbers. They're looking for a safe house because of the political situation, economical situation of their country which is far, far worse than the UK. So as, as property business people, we're competing against others who are not interested in making money. It's not a level playing field. Wow, that is fascinating. Do you know it's something I completely overlooked, the security of it, the safety and security. Now, I just have to ask Imi, London, England, the United Kingdom as a whole, if we're seeing the United Kingdom as a more secure and safe place to have your property investments, where else would somebody with that ideology or thought process go to? Would it have to be um, Europe or where else would you be looking at? There are certainly places in Western Europe which are equally safe Thinking of the Netherlands as an example, but then there are other growing economies like the brick economies, which are far riskier, but certainly the returns are much more lucrative. But the types of investors that I'm talking about aren't necessarily looking at making money when it comes to UK investments, they're looking for a safe haven for their money. They're probably, if they are smart, diversifying their investment portfolio. So they're using the UK as a safe deposit box, effectively. And they leverage it and they're using the British economies, including perhaps even Africa, for their more interesting and lucrative investments. Fascinating. Um... Thank you for that, Imi. I know you're on a noisy train and uh, I forced you to, to come up and talk to us, but I, I do think uh, that has given us tremendous insight into the views from a foreign perspective. So I really appreciate that. Paul, I think we'll move on now to um, the property investor area as a whole a bit more. I'm going to dig out a couple of articles, but um, Paul, on the back channel before we started, actually on WhatsApp, I sent you a couple of articles. Do you have access to those? 
I don't at the moment, Money Penny. Sorry, I don't have access to anything except for the clubhouse, and I can't even download the one that you have at the top. So. Um, but whilst, whilst we're digging out those articles, I do want to come back to Emmy and, and talk about again about the build to rent sector. And the build to rent sector are doing a very similar thing. I mean, you know, it's not necessarily about making large percentages for those people. It's about somewhere to park large amounts of money where A, fundamentally, they see it as being relatively safe and B, that it has some sort of return. Because what's interesting over the next few years, as we go into um, recession and perhaps even a form of depression, um, it's going to be very important for the wealthy to stay wealthy and to try and get even wealthier. And one of the things they have to do to do that is to protect the money that they have. And rightly or wrongly, UK property is seen around the world and particularly in the United Kingdom as a good place to park money in dangerous times. And that's a lot of the reason why we're seeing so much money from, you know, the, the corporates and also so much money from the really large private investors, not the million pound investors, but the billion pound investors going into the build to rent sector. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. And that's what's really, really going to affect um, our industry. And it's already affecting our industry. I think compared to um, the effect that is going to be felt from overseas investors, that's that's a microcosm compared to what we're seeing with the inward investment in the United Kingdom in the, in the private rental sector. Yeah, good point. Um, I'm a bit confused now because we've got some questions in the back channel that are quite interesting. Uh, but also, I'd like to move on to the bigger property investment area. Um, let's just take this quick question because it's a bit... Um, uh, something specific. Um, there are people in the back channel asking, um, as uh, somebody looking into buying a property, um, are there recommendations for first-time buyers? Um, I'm not legally giving advice, clearly, but on a generic level at the moment, there are some excellent deals. I would make sure you go to an independent mortgage broker do not stay outside your bank or building society because you've been with them for 20 years and ask them for a mortgage because generally speaking there are probably about 50,000 products on the market that they will not have access to a specialist lender can give you a panel we call it a whole of market panel and these can be accessed by a investment professional a mortgage professional to look for you so you have to do your homework but I would say that at the moment, my uh, my overriding advice to myself would be look for a good fixed rate. Make sure you go for a property that is either the best property in a very good location, or if you're willing to do work, the worst property in a good location, but go for good location overall. Um, and my thinking is that at the moment, there's not a lot of places that are going to lose money property-wise in what is luckily a stable and secure United Kingdom, as we've heard. But I personally, if I was in a first-time buyer position, I would get on that ladder, but I would get on it bloody quick with a nice, long, fixed rate from a reliable lender with a good financial history with a good financial stability and I would go with something that is 
absolutely affordable now. And also bear in mind that we are going to see prices probably still go up quite a lot before they start coming down. And I'd look for fuel efficiency. I'd look for something maybe that has solar panels or some sort of green efficiency option. Um, and I'd look for something that maybe I had a room to rent out if I needed to. Um, you can rent a room in a house under a different scheme. Um, you could also rent something that had like a granny flat or a little option on the side. Make use of your space. Space is at a premium everywhere and you never know when you'll need a fallback. So always look for a fallback of having a room or an area in that property as a first time buyer. If things get tough, that you can have a little bit of money from having somebody live in the property with you for a short period of time. Cool. I'm going to disagree with just about everything you've, you've said about money. Um, here's what I would say to a first-time buyer or someone buying their own home. Buy a home. Don't buy an investment. Buy a home. Buy somewhere you want to live. Buy somewhere that, that appeals to your heart and not your head. Buy somewhere that makes you want to do a small dance when you walk through the door. Buy a home where you can be with your family, with your friends, where you can be happily alone, where you can love your place that you live in your own little castle and don't buy an investment do you know it's interesting the two biggest purchases that people make in their life is a home and a car and very few people really think about the residual value of a car what it's going to be worth in three years time or four years time very few people think a huge deal about that what they think about is this is a car i love this is a car i want this is a car I'm passionate about. Now, how can I afford it? And that's the way you should look at your home. Not an investment, a place to live. You know, I've bought many, many properties in my life, many, you know, numerous amounts of properties that I have sold, that I have traded, that I have developed, that I have refurbed, that I have rented out. But when I buy a home, I buy a place to live. I don't care what its value is going to be next year, the year after, or the year after that. The same way as I don't really care what a car is going to be worth this year, next year, or the year after that. Because they are things I want in my life. They are things I work for. They are things that are important to me. They are things I share with my loved ones. So stop looking for an investment if you're buying your own home, be it your first home or your 21st home. Buy a place you love and love Get it. Me Get me me the money we do. Paul is such a romantic. I love it. But it's not practical. I mean, come on, come on. First time buyer in this market is stretching themselves to get 5% of what is going to be at least 250 grand for a one or two bedroom flat in most areas. That's a hell of a lot of money. You are not going to get your ideal forever home from a two bed flat in a back road in Leeds. It's just not practicable. <laughs> this is money penny speaking. And clearly I have very different views, but I want people not to out stretch themselves god forbid we have got a market that is volatile yes get a great home but have a home that has opportunity to get a little bit of extra income into it if things get tight so you can ride it through the hard times that you might inevitably come across where we've got currencies all over the place markets all over the place inflation all over the place 
everything all over the place, get some solidity, get a guaranteed amount that you can afford to pay for the next two, five or 10 years and know that you're going to have 700 leaving your bank account every single month for 10 years. And even though you might be earning £30,000 now in five, 10 years time, that'll be 50, 80, 100,000 pounds. So it'll come down. It'll come down. I just, I'm cautious maybe, but I like to see that young people like to make a bit of money too. And if they can work on the house and add some value to it, or even sit tight and just rent out a back room to get over the hurdles. I'm sorry, but I'm in that camp. <laughs> Imi, you were flashing. Have you got an opinion on it? Uh, just let me just come back to you before I bring Emmy in because um, you trampled all over my um, heartfelt um, plea to people buying their own home. And you said it's not going to be their first home, it's not going to be their ideal home. And let me tell you a story, Money Penny, from many years ago. My first car was a Series 2A Land Rover that cost £600 and was a battered up old thing. But it was my battered up old thing. And I loved it to death for about five years. And it broke down sometimes and it was imperfect and it cost me money. And, you know, if I could have that car back today and I've had all types of cars since then, all the fancy badges, right, you know, right from Bentleys to Range Rovers to Rolls Royces and give me that old Land Rover back and I would love it just as much. So ignore money, Penny, and her money grabbing. <laughs> And just, uh, uh, ignore money penny and her money grabbing right and buy a home and buy a home you love that's what you need to do oh, and have it snatched back from the mortgage lender in a few years time when you can't afford the repayments on your little rose cottage in la la land do you know money penny i'm sure you've been in love in your life right and i'm sure that that love didn't last for you forever but wasn't it better wasn't it better to have that love in your life for some time than not have it at all so that's how you should treat your house. Even if the worst happens and they snatch it back, then you got your ideal home, your castle, your Englishman's castle. No matter how small that castle was, it was yours for a period in time. Buy what you can afford, but buy the one that you love, not the one that's the best investment. Well, we got to love him. Look, it's time for a room reset. We've got so many new people in the room. Thank you for coming along. This is Moneypenny Media Newsroom, and we are starting, this is our test show of bringing together the wise, the wonderful, the beauty, the beast, you name it, Ms. Moneypenny and Mr. Merrick, Paul and Nick Moneypenny are today fighting, arguing. No, <laughs> it's in fun. Do you know, Paul and myself have been on a lot of different property shows on Clubhouse and we tend to bounce off each other or punch each other. And it's all very, very entertaining. So don't take it too seriously. We love each other, really. But we do think it's a good idea when we are talking mortgages and property to get different opinions and different views because nobody can guarantee to be correct. There isn't correct. This isn't science, which is in its, in its best form, not correct. Um, we open ideas. We want to open minds. We want to educate you. We want to take your questions. We almost call this room the clinic. 
but I didn't like the idea of Paul with a stethoscope. It sounded a bit too dangerous for my liking. So welcome to Mortgages and Property. We are here for you to take any questions you've got. We'll be tackling a number of different topics every week if the room is successful enough to go ahead to the next step. And we are going to be closing the room in 16 minutes at half past the hour. So if you have got a budding question, you could come up on stage, you could be brave, or you can just put it in the back channel and hope to hell that one of us picks it up. Okay, so we've tackled a few questions. We've tackled a little bit looking at international markets. We've got some questions in the back channel about how property investment strategy would relate internationally, maybe in the United States for investors there. And there's a lot of macro things that, yes, would apply to any property investor. You've got to look at things like rental income, the net rental income after costs. You've got to look at taxation. How are you taxed if you're making money on properties, if you are selling properties? For example, in, in the UK, when you sell a second property, you will have to pay a capital gains tax on it, which is a tax on the profits. Now, there are many clever accountants and many clever ways that property investors are broadly aware of, of how to reduce things like capital gains tax. There are many ways in the United Kingdom that by using certain schemes or going to your local council or helping out with things like insulation and efficiency can be done on a much cheaper way. And I'm sure those apply equally in the United States. But overall, I've been a property investor on a very, very tiny scale as somebody who luckily worked her butt off in the city for 30 years and made some money and bought property. But there are some people that have huge, great big organizations that do this on a professional basis and the money is going into pension funds or the money is going into great big uh, bonds and you know bigger type investments that we, each of us don't, we're not aware, but we do actually invest in it. One of the things I would like to look at is financing property investment. And that's if you're thinking to start, if you're at a junior level, or if you're already doing it successfully, but want to share with us perhaps what's the trade-off between doing it as a joint venture, as in going in with another investor or somebody who is just an angel investor who's pretty much hands off. Do you raise your money through loans? What's the lending market like at the moment for those types of loans? Or do you decide, I'm going to go through a crowdfunding scheme? Now, just to the latter, I did work with a company called Crowd Property for a number of years when they were starting off. They are now, fortunately, incredibly successful. And the model of Crowd Property funding is very much that they will find ooh, 8-9% return for 5% going in. I think it's about that. I'm sorry, I don't know the accurate numbers at the moment, but it does give you a second avenue if you want to invest in property, but you don't want to make the full outlay and get out the building blocks and do all the work yourself. There are other things called REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts, um, that's another way of going into property. And there are certainly a lot of property funds that you can look at, all of which require a huge amount of intelligence research or a consultant who specializes in that. So don't take my word for it. Go and find one if that's your way of doing it. But back to Paul, what is happening in the big lender market? 
are we going to joint venture our way out of this dip or is it all about lending? And if so, what do you feel is the biggest issue in the lending market for the property investor at the moment? I think the biggest thing to have happened in my lifetime, Kenny, and that's getting on a bit now, my lifetime. I mean, that's talking about a long time. I think the biggest thing that's happened in lending in terms of property and in terms of business generally is crowdfunding or peer-to-peer lending. I think that is changing the world and is growing at an unbelievable rate at the moment. And you know, I, as I look forward into my crystal ball, I see that taking up a huge percentage of the business market in terms of business lending and the prop- professional property um, developer or professional property landlord. I think that's going to supply most of the lending for both of those types of characters in the coming years. And it's also now getting back into the build to rent as well and opening that sector up. So it's a really, really interesting sector. A number of years ago, um, I actually, before they started Crowd Property, um, we looked at doing a very similar thing, but decided that I was too long in the tooth to start something um, of that magnitude. But it's a very interesting business model and it is changing the sector um, and changing lending generally. And that's that's a paradigm shift. That's not a little change. That's a paradigm shift in lending and it's going to change the world. Well, that's a big statement. Um, I've just put a link at the top for those of you that are not familiar. There are a number of different peer-to-peer and sort of um, funding options in this crowd-funded sector. Um, I am not advocating or proposing that crowd property um, be your area of choice or your company of choice. It is simply an example of a company that is professionally run by people that Paul and I are very familiar with. Um, and it's worth having a read, having a look at how it's how it's done, whether or not it's appropriate for you. And certainly as a junior property investor, um, I would advocate that you look at things like this because there are property investor networks that will offer a lot of training and a lot of education, whether it be going online for courses, whether it be doing residential courses on short term, but there are a lot of people that are looking to help you. You'll find that the generally speaking, the the property investment sector in the UK has got some thoroughly nice people in it and people that want to help you and want to advise you. And there are an awful lot of good forums you can find online, obviously this property forum being one of them, um, that you can talk to other people and exchange ideas. And it is often through people you know, um, family, friends that may just have a few thousand pounds sitting in a bank, which currently you're probably not going to get more than 1% return from, although with rates getting up, hopefully a little bit more. But maybe they want to look, your friends and family want to look at maybe putting together something where they could invest as a family investment. These are the sorts of things they can teach you about, about the pros and cons of doing that. But many very ordinary, down to earth, not very wealthy people have managed to get together and fund the purchase of maybe their first or second rental property simply by putting hard work in, by doing their own work on a property that's a bit run down and by what's called flipping it, by doing the work and then selling it on pretty quickly afterwards. 
for me, it's an area that is still fascinating and still offers a lot of value. And let's face it at the moment with the volatility we've got, getting a lot of value and even having the the fun and the insight and the learning of working on a property together and doing it up, it can be something that is very rewarding indeed. Right, Paul, oh, shall we just take some questions to the back channel before we close the programme? I'm not sure if we've lost Emmy or not, but we did say we were going to go back to Emmy just after I corrected you because um, because I love working with Money Penny. Although she says things like you know everybody's entitled to their own opinion and everybody's opinion equal, I just imagine that if I ever visited Money Penny, there would be a sign above her <laughs> door that says everybody's entitled to my opinion. Ooh, well, come on, let's put your opinion on the line. We can have a bet. We can put a friendly bet down as to whether or not somebody purchasing a property that they love with a rose cottage at a certain price versus a two bed, very nicely located flat with great rental property is going to come out better in five years time. I think I'm going to make a ah, define better money, Penny. Define oh, better. Oh, we're going to do this purely on commercial terms. We're going to oh, oh, have oh, a look. Are we money, Penny? I didn't realise yes. the rules of the game. I'm not a romantic. Don't be silly. There's no rose cottages for money, Penny. I'll tell you another car story, money, Penny, because I'm a bit of a petrol head. The first decent car I bought, I was 26 years of age, and I bought a Mercedes 240 diesel in old English red, which did not to 60 in about 4.6 weeks. And I loved that car. And I sold that car, and I should have never have sold that car because I it was the first ever decent car I had. I'd wanted one for a number of years. One of the guys that was originally my mentor, not a paid mentor, but somebody that I followed around like a little sheep had one, and I wanted one just like his. And I'm sorry I sold that car. And what's that car worth to me today? Any price I had to pay for it. Any price I had to pay for it. You see, Money Penny, things that you love are more important than money. I totally agree. My two little dogs are my world. and There is no amount of money that I wouldn't pay. In fact, it's been £18,000 in the last three years for health bills for my little doggies um, are precious. And I am sentimental. And I do have that little, not a cottage, but I do love property. And I do love investing. And I love doing the interiors. And I love doing all those bits. But there has to be a practical commercial head as well if you are going to come out of it unscathed. As I've learnt, and as many other property investors have learnt, particularly in the last two years, what's been a rocky ride. Look, let me tell you, do you know what the rental income increase has been in the United Kingdom in the last six months? How much has rental income gone up? Have a guess, Paul. 16%. Ah, you've been reading my notes. Of course it's 16%. Damn, he knew that. I, I only, you know, Bunny Penny, I'm going to tell you a wee secret because this is the first show we've done together. I only pretend to be ignorant. I am quite knowledgeable in my own industry. <laughs> thank you. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have ever underestimated. But, but let me, but let me, but let me correct you again. Once again, let me correct you. Right. Um, I feel that not enough people have done that in your life, so I'm kind of making up for years of it. So the person who asked wasn't a property investor. The person who asked was a first-time buyer. That isn't a property investor. Everybody that buys a house is not an investor. Some people just want a, 
let me into your secret. I'll let you into your secret money, Penny. Some people just want a home, not an investment. If that was my son or daughter doing their first time buy, I would simply say to them, you are buying a property for you and I hope you love it. But I am not going to bail you out when suddenly your electricity and gas bills go up another 600%. So if you've got a spare room, it would be sensible to be able to have a spare room to rent it out and get some money in. That's my point. It's just practicality, Paul. We're just looking at it from different points of view. Yes, there's a right one and a wrong one. I wouldn't dare want to say which is which. <laughs> right. Okay. So rental income is up 16%. Inflation. Oh, sorry. Can, can, I see Emmy's come back. Can we just go? Oh, he did uh, join okay. us Let's on stage. Let's go live to the train. Emmy, are you with us? Yes. We can get a bit caught up with each other. Yeah, I'm out of uh, the train finally. So I'm now on Bond Street. Just a quick one. And we're, we're going back to a conversation we were having about half an hour ago about um, um, property prices uh, increasing by 11%. And if you compound that by the affordability tests or the stress tests, as they call them, being abolished as of the 1st of August or whenever the date was, my thinking is, from a bank's perspective, they're looking at these properties as inflatory assets and they're going well you know what if the owner occupier can't pay we'll simply repossess if the investor can't pay we'll most definitely repossess what do you guys think oh ladies first kilts first <laughs> you're half kilt are you not madam you told me um <laughs> Half Scottish. Um, I knew there was something I liked about you. I could never quite figure out I what know, it is. And now, up, now I understand. <laughs> I, that was pathetic, Hen. That was pathetic. Um, I think they've done it before, Emmy. I think you know the the bank, the Royal Bank of Scotland, is still going through cases where they took people's properties away held on to them. You know, they took them away because they needed to repossess them to sell them to get their money back and held on to them for over a decade until the prices went up. Um, there's always been a land grab by banks. It's one of the reasons we run a debt-free portfolio. Banks have always throughout the centuries, centuries done land grabs. Um, they let us people do the hard work and then they take the rewards. Um, it's never stopped. It never will stop. It's part of the banking system. My only comment would be that I think if that did happen, Immy, at a political level, there would be an outcry. If we were to see a huge surge in empty homes, empty properties, when we've got people on council waiting lists, you know, waiting years, we've got, you know, a lot of people coming into the UK from other countries who we cannot house, who we're putting on aeroplanes to Rwanda, there would be an outcry if properties were snatched and left open for months and months. I think politically somebody would step in. That's just my thoughts. I think you're right. However, we have a general election coming. So all they're concerned about is winning the general election. When is that? What the consequences in the long term? Well, general election. We need a prime minister first, don't we? 
she will win. She will win. Just a matter of time. Yeah, well, I'm glad, but she doesn't know where the Ukraine is and couldn't find Indonesia without a Boy Scout on a bloody pony. I mean, her geographical knowledge as a foreign minister, quite frankly, oh, I'm getting political. <laughs> I'll keep quiet. We don't want them to be too smart. Huh? At the end of the day, if they're surrounding themselves by smarter people, <laughs> that's still a winning team. <gasps> Oh, Amy, I love you. I love you. So um, for those of you who don't get our, our quite in, in jokes here, for those of us uh, who are in the UK, I know there's people in the audience that are not. We currently have two candidates to take over the position from Boris. One is uh, Liz Truss, former sort of foreign secretary, um, not great at geography. And then we have um, our former chancellor, Rishi Sunak, not good at maths. Um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. We're coming to the end of the programme. It's 8.30pm here in the United Kingdom. Wow, what a show. Paul, do you think we survived it? I was just thinking, one's no good at economics and one's no good at geography. But it's OK because we had a Prime Minister who was no good at politics. So that kind of fits quite well. Ciao. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> Sorry, that was the actual expression that Boris Johnson used as he walked out of the House of Commons. Um, yes, it is very tongue in cheek. And luckily, all he's done for the last few days is spend a hell of a lot of taxpayer money on his wedding ceremony. Mm. Let's put that behind us. We're putting the show behind us. I hope you've enjoyed it. From Paul, myself and Immy, thank you so much for coming to the Moneypenny Merrick Mortgages and Property Show. Did you like it? If you did, we might do another one. Anyway, we might do another one if you didn't like it because we had fun. <laughs> Comments, please. Michelle says she's looking forward to more. Thank you so much for being with us. And hopefully you'll look at 7 p.m. on Mondays and Wednesdays. We'll be uh, moving it a little bit as the time to come and have some fun with Paul Merrick and Money Penny Nick. We loved having you. Thank you so much. Paul, do you want to say your goodbyes? Or we'll do a countdown. I, I couldn't put it better than you, Money, Penny, you know, um, the queen of language, the queen of Clubhouse. Um, I'm 8,500 followers, Money Penny has. And if you want to follow her, that would make it even more. I've only got uh, 1,100 followers. So if you want to follow me, that would be lovely too. Oh, um, but I, I shall follow all of you in the audience um, and hopefully I shall learn enough to say something of importance the next time I'm with Money Penny. Until then, have a good one. From me, Mr. Thank, you Thank you, Imi, for coming up. Three, two, one. Bye. <laughs>